as a leader, as a director of the department, I really need to understand the roles and the jobs that everyone's doing. Obviously, I can't be an athletic trainer and, and tape ankles, even though I had my ankles taped so many times when I was playing, I probably could. But um, but really try to try to connect with people on a level and and um, even even new taking this role. I mean, um, I, I've really kind of really been really quick to listen and, and slow to act because I, I need to learn and I need to understand and I need to know why this works this way or why that works that way. And really connect with people and, and get to be people on a personal level. Welcome to Building Ideas, exceptional people discussing inspired experiences that create an enduring impact on our communities. Building Ideas is presented by MSA Design. To learn more about MSA, visit us on the web at www.msaarch.com. Hi, this is Bill. Welcome to the podcast. We appreciate all your support. If you like what you're hearing on Building Ideas, we ask that you rate it, forward it, leave a positive comment in the comment marks on whatever platform you're using, but just spread some good energy out there and try to impart the wisdom that we're learning from all of our guests and all of your friends and colleagues. You know, through our unique sports practice, we're able to really get to know the life and the journey that many in the industry, whether it's a collegiate, professional, parks and recreation, high school, community-based, whatever the sports entity agency, the folks in that industry generally are pretty mobile. And so today's guest uh, exemplifies the mobility required to pursue a life and a career and a dream in the sports business. Nate Stewart joins us as the Director of Athletics at Carthage College, which is on the west shore of Lake Michigan between Chicago and Milwaukee. Great place, beautiful campus, a little cold this time of year, but it's a great place. They're doing great work in the Division Three landscape. Um, normally, I, I list the college mascots. In this case, they are without one at this point in time. And we'll talk a little bit about the trend in sports, whether it's professional, collegiate, high school, community-based, where previous mascots, previous names, likenesses are being changed as a result of cultural pressures and, and cultural norms shifting. Um, he is a native of the great Commonwealth of Virginia and grew up in Southwest Virginia, graduated from Roanoke College, home of the Maroons, and his graduate school work started at Marshall University, home of the Thundering Hurt. Great place. Go check it out. Um, his journeyman lifestyle started as a college coach in basketball. He was a student athlete at Roanoke and then ended up going into coaching and has taken him on many journeys from the Radford Highlanders, Valley City State Vikings, UMBC Retrievers, was an athletic director at Eastern University, home of the Eagles, and at Center College, home of the Colonels, and now to his position at Carthage, where he's in charge. He is a passionate advocate for student athletes and their experience. You'll hear it throughout his commentary. He gives us some great insights on you know, life as a coach, life as a student athlete, and then how that has uh, influenced him in his journey. He's a great human being. He's a proud husband and father. So today's exceptional person, welcome, Nate Stewart. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how a, a kid from Old Dominion, the Virginia Commonwealth, ended up here on the shores of Lake Michigan? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a wild. Uh, yeah, who who would have thought, right? So yeah, <laughs> fortunate. Grew up, uh, grew up in Radford, Virginia. Um, uh, was a three sport athlete in high school and just just love athletics. Um, 
when it came time to apply to colleges, you know, I had 55 kids in my graduating class in high school for a public high school. So uh, obviously grew up in a very small community and knew I did not probably want to go to a big state school and needed the kind of that one-on-one personal interaction. Uh, so did the college search and was fortunate enough that I was, I was six foot eight and was able to get recruited to play college basketball. And I, I just on Roanoke college in, in Virginia and it was, I love my experience as a Division three student athlete. It was phenomenal. Uh, we won a couple championships, played in a couple NCAA tournaments, met a lot of great friends, uh, met my wife Lauren there, actually. So um, we, we have those ties. And I, I was a, a health and human performance major, which is just fancy for physical education. So my, my entire intent the entire time I was in college was I was going to be a, a physical education teacher and be a high school basketball coach. That's, that's what I wanted to do. Um, over the course of playing, uh, I didn't have time to student teach in the four years, so I, I – was all set to graduate in May, but was going to come back the following fall and student teach so I could get my teaching license. And um, <laughs> my dad said, you know, we were talking that spring, and he said, you know, I don't, you, you really don't want to, you really don't want to be a teacher. Why don't you try to get into college coaching? You're young, you're not tied down, you can move wherever you need to go. Um, you know, why don't you try to get in? And so, sure enough, I did, and I was fortunate. My my college coach, Paige Moyer at Roanoke, who who actually worked at Cincinnati for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he could tell some good stories there. We've been to Montgomery oh. and had ribs on a trip. You know, he, he, he gave us the full Cincinnati flavor, but um, yeah. he was very well connected. Actually ended up being the president of the NABC, which is the uh, National Association of Basketball Coaches. He made a couple calls, and um, actually the, the first job I got, it's actually kind of uh, funny now, given what I do, but the, so the first good job I got was to be a graduate assistant at Marshall University, and it was a facilities and oh, yeah. game. So, um, you know, I showed up in Huntington. I thought I, you know, knew everything because I'm a first college graduate, and uh, they handed me a, a field painter and a pressure washer and said, "Go, go spray all the all the bird poop off the side of the stadium and go paint the practice football field." So I had to learn a lot of things on my own and uh, learned a lot of things about facilities. And I was fortunate, right place, right time, that they just hired a new basketball coach at Marshall, Ron Jersa, uh, and he didn't really have time to fill out his staff. And I happened to be there, and they were looking for a graduate assistant. And this was kind of before uh, everybody had you know, 20 coaches on staff. And he said, well, you're, we need you. Why don't you come over and switch to basketball? And so that was how I got my foot in the door. Just really lucky being right place, right time started in division one, uh, was there for two years. And then, you know, I, I decided, um, I always, always in the back of my mind, knew I was going to try to work my way back to division three, but decided, let me, let me, let me pursue division one. So spent a year assistant at, at Radford university where I grew up and that was great. And my mom really liked that because I lived at home for the year. Um, yeah. but, um, after there, I was at UMBC in Baltimore for five years and then was fortunate enough to get the head coaching opportunity uh, at Eastern University, a Division three school right outside of Philadelphia, right down the street from Villanova. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Brad Fields was the AD at, uh, at Eastern who hired me there, uh, was there for five years, and then uh, they, they came to me and said, we want you to be the athletic director. Uh, so switched into administration, and I just had my, my oldest child was born at that time and was you know kind of tired of the recruiting grind and was ready to try to do something different, skills yeah. and ability. So uh, ended up being the athletic director there and then um, got hired away to go to Valley City in North Dakota uh, for a year. So was there. And then Brad, who, who had since left Eastern and, and ended up back at center, right? It's all, all connections. Yeah. Uh, out of the blue one day, we'd stay in touch. We're, we're good friends. Our kids are the same age. Our wives are really good friends. And he said, hey, you know, my my um, my, my assistant athletic director position is going to open. And, and just so happens that Andrew Gavin, who was in that role at the time, took the job at University of Wisconsin Parkside that is in Kenosha. Uh-huh. Division two school here. And so, you know, Brad and I went back and forth and I think I told him no five or six times and he finally kept making the offer really good. He said, just, just come down and visit, just bring your family. We'll fly everybody down. Just come down and visit Danville. And so I talked to my wife. She said, well, yeah, I guess we could go visit. So we visited and long story short, we ended up taking the job. So spent, spent three years at center, uh, phenomenal yeah. experience as a deputy athletic director there. That's where we had the opportunity to meet, yeah. uh, 
And sure enough, the CrossFit job came open, and uh, and Kurt Patberg, who who runs Athletic Staffing Consultants, was a they hired to be the consultant on there. And he said, "Would you be call me, and would you have any interest?" And I I knew of Carthage. Didn't know a lot about it, but knew they have great facilities. And uh, obviously, Kenosha is a really cool town. We're right on the right on Lake Michigan. It's not. It wasn't fun yesterday when I walked across campus to go meet with the president. And the wind was whipping. It was a little chilly, but uh, but we moved here and, and and things have been really good. So so Brad's last two positions are both in uh, both in Kenosha. We keep telling him he needs to come visit, but uh, but he doesn't want to come see us. <laughs> not this time of year, right? All over the place. So it's it's really been fun. Had an opportunity to meet a lot of really cool people, see a lot of really cool things, and um, yeah, yeah when traded for the world. Yeah. Did you ever get a chance to play at the Palestra when you were in uh, Philly? Philly. So I never played there. When I was an assistant at UOBC, we played UPenn. So I've been to the Palestra and just, you talk about like just, just a magical place. I mean, as soon as you walk in the front doors, you just feel the history and, um, you know, the kids were downstairs getting dressed and they had kind of had the museum up in the concourse and you just walk mm-hmm. around, look at all the really cool things. And, um, you know, you wouldn't know it's a basketball arena. It just kind of looks like an office building when you pull up and, in South Philly there. And, uh, yeah, it's, it, that was one of the really, that was one of the coolest places I've ever been to, to play or coach a game. Yeah. I got to go there in college and I was there for a, like a long weekend trip. And somehow somebody said, you got to go to the palestra and being a Midwestern kid, I didn't know about it. And then I went in and I was like, Oh, this is like one of the high churches of college basketball, especially on the East coast. Yeah. I mean, just, just in, in Philadelphia is a really rich basketball community. I mean, just the, 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 the high caliber of players that have come from Philadelphia, the high caliber of coaches. I mean, obviously there's, there's a ton of colleges and then you get the big five and, and Villanova's had a ton of success. And um, yeah, it's just, it's amazing how many people have come from Philadelphia and then gone on to contribute to college basketball. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, you mentioned a couple of folks, Brad, some other colleagues, are there any other influential people who kind of guided you to this, you know, direction where you are? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm most recently, obviously, Brad is Brad has probably been the been the guy who's kind of been you know not only is he a great mentor but he's a great friend and um, you know we we still talk we don't talk quite as much as we used to obviously every day but we still try to make a point to talk at least once a week and um, uh, it's just good that you know you, I have someone I can bounce things off of he can bounce some things off of me we're all really dealing with the same problems and so he he's good um, you know in, in coaching you know I was fortunate enough you know obviously my college coach Coach Moyer was a was certainly a, a a big influence on me. Um, you know, he helped me go from being a wet behind the years, 18 year old to, to growing up and becoming a man. And, um, you know, every day wasn't easy and he challenged me and, 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 you know, he, he made me a much better person and, um, it certainly helped me, uh, over the course of my career. Um, uh, Frankie Allen, who was a long time, uh, assistant coach was a head coach of Virginia tech for a while. He, I, I had, He's also a Roanoke College grad, graduated in the 70s, scored a heck of a lot more points in college than I did, but uh, <laughs> just a great human being and, and was certainly there for me early in my coaching career. And, um, you know, we had that Southwest Virginia connection. And then, you know, all, all the different head coaches I worked for to, to, to I got to the point to be a head coach myself, you know, Ron Jersa, uh, Byron Samuels at Radford, uh, Randy Monroe at UMBC, you know, the, those guys certainly modeled the way for me too. Mm-hmm. So, um, COVID, right? We've talked a lot about this, this these, these last hellish 10 months. How do you think, you know, you have a great journey because you've been in Division One from a coaching side and then certainly at administration in Division Three. How is this going to change college athletics looking forward? Is it similar for both? Is it more impactful for each kind of level? What do you think? So, it, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I think for in my current situation in division three, right? The small private liberal arts world who are very enrollment driven. Um, 
you know, the the pressures are there. The pressures are real to enroll a class, not just not just a class of student athletes, but an entire incoming class. And um, and, and a credit to consumers, but consumers have gotten smarter. You know, the student loan, the student loan, and the debts, and and all those conversations have kind of have kind of gone front front and center. Uh, there's more competition now between between colleges who are trying to enroll. And if you look at the look at the data, 2026 is going to kind of be the big impending cliff that they that they all talk about because there's there's less high school graduates that are going to graduate as as a result of the recession in the in the mid 2000s 2008 um so there's more competition than than ever so so colleges are you know investing in facilities they're investing in trying to raise money for endowments and financial aid and and different things to drive enrollment through athletics on the flip side of that you know i i like it back to my low major division one days you know most of those schools are state schools they're bigger schools you know athletics play a part in enrollment but they're not really driving enrollment and so the the fixed cost of being able to compete you know and uh, some of this is we watch this name image and likeness uh, yeah. legislation kind of kind of go through and you know it, it, what's congress going to do and how are they going to be involved and what are the pressures you know the cost of attendance when i was when i was a division one assistant then i think it's great that they're doing it now but there was no cost of attendance scholarship they didn't have to factor that in uh mm-hmm. that's there now that's a really uh, big important factor in in recruiting so um it's going to be interesting to see when does the point of saying we just can't compete anymore you know we're, we're chasing one we're in a one big league one big one bid league excuse me to the ncaa tournament we're chasing this bid you know when do the pros and the cons start to outweigh each other and and do some of those schools start to make the decision that it's not worth us to to support division one athletics do we drop to division two or do we drop to division three where we can not have to pay for scholarships and and we have a real effect you know when, when i was at umbc for example the state of maryland had a law that they could not spend any state funds on intercollegiate athletics so uh, everything was either garnered through student fees or it was garnered through donations and and again students and families and, and consumers are are much more in tune now to to the fees and they're not just kind of sweeping those things under the rug so it's going to be interesting yeah. to see because the cost to compete and the cost to do business now in the code world between the testing and the travel and the way you have to do things and you're not the revenue streams are not what they once were if yeah there can't be an NCAA tournament this year. You know, I saw last year the NCAA had a loss of six hundred million, and and what is that going to do to some of the some of the revenue shares? So it's going to be interesting to see kind of where people put their priorities. So in you know from your Division One days working in kind of mid major, a group of five, right? Marshall's a group of five school. Do they just split? Do the group of five go off and the Power Five, or do you think there's going to be a shuffling of who's in, who's out? What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. To be honest with you, I'm not sure. You know, I, I'm not. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to keenly have my uh, my ear to the ground like I like I once did in terms of hearing, hearing the news. I, you know, in, in all honesty, uh, it's they got to keep the basketball tournament together, right? Everybody's kind of yeah. invested in that. You know, I, I could see them, and I know the. Different constituencies have said, well, just split Power 5 football off. They should be in their own own thing, let them do their own thing, play by their own set of rules. And, um, you know, I, I I guess maybe there's pros to that or cons to that. I'm, I'm not in, into that enough uh, on a day-to-day basis to know. But, you know, I, I, I hope they stay together because I think March Madness is special. I think it's really neat. I think it's really, really unique. And uh, to have the Cinderella's of the world knock off the yeah. knock off. Uh, but but I do think there will be some probably like you said reshuffle of the deck and and um, you're going to have the haves and and they're going to go their way and then you're going to have the have nots and they're going to decide what, what's it worth to us to keep trying to compete to keep trying to chase and when yeah. does it really become enough we can only build we can only put so much money into facilities we can only do so much to keep up and and, and when does it when does that where's the tipping point yeah does it ever expand where FCS football pulls a lot of those folks down right but yet you still have the main tournament I don't know it'd be interesting. So here's a question. How big should the CFP get? 
What's your take? As a sports fan and as a guy who loves to watch college football, I would love for, to see them expand. I'd, I'd love to see them take 12 teams. But, of course, then you're always going to get the argument. You know, this year they, they you know, have taken four. So five and six should be in. Texas A&M should have been in this year. Well, no matter how big you make it, there's always going to be the team that should have been in. Um, you know, I, I'd love to, it, you know, I think we need to be smart about student athlete health and mental well-being. And, um, you know, if they made the, the CFP bigger, they probably need to reduce the number of games in the regular season. And I think from a revenue stream and a revenue standpoint, I, I don't know how yeah. plausible that really is. Um, but I would certainly like to see it expand because I think it, it, there's great excitement around it. I think it's really cool to, to watch. And, you know, one of the things I love most about um, being in college athletics, is just seeing student athletes have the joy of competing. You know, that's the thing I probably missed over the course of the last year. We just tipped basketball here last weekend. And um, so I'm saying and I've been in Carthage for five months and finally get to see my first competitive game. It's men's basketball, and there's been a lot of things and a lot of work and a, and a lot of you know, blood, sweat, and tears, so to speak, rolling up our sleeves, getting COVID testing off the ground and all that. To just finally just stand there by myself and just watch a game. And it wasn't so much that they were actually playing. It was just seeing the looks and the demeanor on the faces of our student athletes. And you could you could see it was instantaneously. The ball went up, and they're back to their back to their zone. They're back to being able to compete and see the smiles on their faces. So um, that is one of the cool things about the playoffs. You know, the, the student athletes, you can see just, just the competitive drive and the, and the opportunity and the chance to be the best. They definitely want that. Yeah. You, talk, you touched a little bit about the name and likeness legislation. What's your take? Where should that go? What should the athletes, what should the benefit be for them? And do you support it or are you against it? I mean, you alluded to it, but what do you think? You know, I, I think I'm supportive. I mean, obviously the athletes are, are a big, big part of the process, big part of the enterprise, right? With, without their, you know, and I, and I hate to put it in these terms, but without their labor, so to speak, right? The, the, the ship wouldn't leave the station. Um, you know, I think that this needs to be, and this is one of the reasons I think it's taken so long to get to this point. There needs to be well thought out. Um, legislation. Obviously, you, you wouldn't want someone to get in it and inherit recruiting advantage, or but but I do think the athletes, you know, they, the NCAA is great, but they do have some silly rules, right? And what you can put on social media and what you can't put on social media, and being able to use their name to promote their camp and and some other things. And then you know, if you get into the advertising realm um, and the influencers, and you know, Instagram and Facebook and some of these things have really have really changed the changed the market. So. I would like to see a national set of rules. And, you know, I know they're, they're talking to Congress because if you, if you go state by state, I think you can obviously create some imbalances and, and some unfair advantages. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I think it would be good to see the student athletes, you know, get some benefits. And, and obviously we've got to keep it within reason. Right. But, um, yeah. <laughs> we'll be able to, to have a piece of the pie. Yeah. So Nate, one of the topics we're beginning to see across the board, especially in the Midwest now, um, but you see it nationally with the NFL is that there's, um, uh, kind of a cultural shift going in collegiate and professional and sports mascots where maybe some of the traditional historic mascots that were based on maybe native Americans, native American stereotypes, tribes, cultures are really shifting out. And, and I know from our conversations that uh, Carthage college is going through that process. So um, where are you at in the process and, and how has that been going so far? Yeah, we are. So we, we're actually down to the final three. So uh, we're having kind of focus group calls. Our, our president uh, gets the dubious task of making a recommendation to our board of trustees at our, our meeting in February. So he is uh, he's meeting with various constituencies. We just met with all our student athletes yesterday to get their feedback. Uh, he's going to coaches next week and, and uh, alumni council. And he's actually, we have a task force. We're actually meeting this afternoon uh, and he's taking the feedback and going to kind of formulate that back out, make a, make a recommendation to the board in, in February. And, you know, hopefully sometime this spring we'll, we'll have a public reveal. Yeah. That's, that's a sub, it's a high subject now, right. You know, looking at, 
inclusion and diversity and historic kinds of things. Um, is that a process that's like out there that you guys followed or is this something you had to generate on your own? Uh, you know, they they had already started by by the time I got here, but I think they had kind of looked at best practices across the industry. You know, Amherst in, in Massachusetts had just gone through this a couple of years ago. So mm-hmm. uh, our communications office was was in touch with them to kind of figure, figure out, okay, what, what did you guys do that worked really well? And what, you know, if you could do this over again, what would you not have done? Uh, and I think feedback from there was was positive. And um, so they've created a task force and uh, one of our one of our board of trustee members has chaired the task force and it was very inclusive. You know, we, we solicited names and, and solicited feedback from the campus community. Um, I think we got over 300 submissions and we were able to kind of weed those down and the, the task force kind of chopped those down to the top. I think it was 16. Uh, and then we survey out. People were able to respond back and the task force has taken the, the survey responses. And um, that, that's kind of how what we've used to guide us through the process. What are some of the challenges you alluded to the big enrollment cliff drop right in 2026? What are some of the other challenges that you see in the division three world now that you're in that, you've been in that world for a number of years and then how do you think you're going to overcome it? Yeah. I mean, enrollment's always a challenge, right? And just, um, being able to enroll a class. And, and so what we're, you know, for example, if at Carthage, we're about 36 or 37% of the student body are, are student athletes. It's great. I mean, our, our kids get to keep playing. Our student athletes get to keep playing. You know, we have some club sports, we have some intramural things. Um, we have a fitness center and, and, and all those things. So there's become pressure to, um, to use athletics as an enrollment driver. And it's not just, you know, not just at Carthage, it's it's across Division Three, and, you know, we have 27 sports at, at Carthage. We have a lot of, we have 750 student athletes, and it's really cool to be involved in a group that, that is that big. But I think enrollment's always going to be going to be a pressure. And then, you know, capital facility projects are always going to be another pressure sure. in Division Three. Um, you know, just like I was talking about with the low major Division One schools and the arm race there, I mean, we, we see it in Division Three, right? It all relates back to enrollment. We, we need to build nice facilities, and we need to provide our our coaches and student athletes great places to practice and compete. And, and um, you know, one of the things I've really seen take off in, in my 20, well, 18 years of the business is, is locker rooms and the need for locker rooms and having those personalized spaces. And, um, and again, it all comes back to, to, to enrollment and, and the competition to compete that way. So being able to try to try to leverage new facilities and, and, and modern facilities and providing the best, the best opportunities. We touched on like the palestra just because I, when I think of Philly and I think college hoops, and people who haven't gone to Palester need to go. It's just it's like Cameron Indoor Stadium, right? It's the old Chicago Stadium before they knocked it down. You need to go. So, um, what are some key places, spaces, or experiences in the built environment that have inspired you? Whether it's going back to your playing days, your coaching days, your now your AD in days, or yeah, you know, it, that that's an interesting. Um that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, so we were joking earlier when we were kind of talking off the cuff, but um, I, I grew up in, in Radford, Virginia. So I grew up down the right down the street from Virginia tech. So I can remember yeah. as, as a, as a little, little kid, I mean, um, I had a lot of family members who are from West Virginia. So back in the day, Virginia tech and West Virginia used to mm. use the same conference. And it was, it was, ugly. I mean, I didn't realize it as a seven year old, how ugly it was, but it, but it was ugly. And I can remember going to games with my dad because he, you know, he graduated from Virginia tech. He got his master's and, um, so he was kind of a Virginia Tech fan on one hand, but he was a West Virginia fan on the other hand because of the the family relation. So I can remember seeing the evolution of Lane Stadium. Um, and then you know, when I went in college and Michael Vick was there and really, you know, things kind of took off and they played in the national championship game and they enclosed the end zone and how loud it was. I can just just remember those days. And then uh, even in the middle as a, as a 
you know, 12, 13, 14 year old high school kid. I was fortunate. I had a, a high school coach who worked for Pepsi and Pepsi had the porn rights in Lane Stadium. And I didn't, yeah. at that point, I had no idea what porn rights were and how all those different things went. But I <laughs> football practice one day. He said, Hey, you guys want to make an extra 50 bucks this weekend? I was like, yeah, I'm always down to make $50. So we went and sold Pepsi's in the stadium. And it's, you know, I've gone from selling Pepsi's in the stadium to now being an athletic director to coaching everywhere else and in, in, in between. But, um, yeah, those were, those are, those are the, the fun experiences. Um, you know, I always take stock now that I always look at facilities. Every time I go on a college campus, I, I love to walk through these and just kind of see different unique, um, ideas. You know, one of the things that sticks with me when I was a division one assistant, we played Notre Dame and Notre Dame, they have the best popcorn I've ever eaten. Um, from the, <laughs> you know, don't, don't tell anybody, but we went in and got popcorn before the game because it just smelled so good. You had to, you had to try it. So it's, it's, it's those memories that, uh, that kind of stick back with you. And, 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 and you were, you know, I, I really do remember those. What's the best building you've ever played a game or coached a game in at the time, you know, in, this is, I'm going to answer it this way because I got to see the entire building. So when I was an assistant at UMBC, we played Ohio State at Ohio State, and I believe they called the Value City Arena. We got to pre- we practiced there the day before. They had a concert or an event going on in the main floor, so we practiced in the practice facility. Um, you know that that was a really really awesome on campus um, facility. Um, my first college road game as a as a college player, and I can say this now because I'm in the conference, but we we took a bus from Salem, Virginia to uh, Bloomington, Illinois, and played at Illinois Wesleyan. And, you know, so I, like I said earlier, I grew up in, in high school and my graduating class was 55 kids. So, you know, if we got 200 people at our high school games, it was a, it was a big deal. Uh, and we go to warm up my first ever college game as a freshman in the fall of 1999 and we're warming up at, at Illinois Wesleyan. They have 5,000 people in there and a pet band playing and all those things for, for a division three environment. That was, that was really, uh, that was really neat, really cool. And, you know, Playing in the Salem Civic Center, where they played a lot of Division Three national championships, we'd always play that ODAC tournament there. And I had, I can remember as a junior in college, I had one of my best games ever in that building. So that that building will always uh, always hold some semblance to me as a, as a player. Who was your guys' rival in college? Hampton Sydney was, and so my my junior and senior year actually in college. So Hampton Sydney and Randolph Macon and Richmond, they were one two in the country um, ranked nationally. So you know we we had our we had our work cut out for us uh, on nights when we played them. Uh-huh. That's cool. I remember my my freshman year. You know, I was I was you know part of this as a freshman, and I was playing behind three All Americans. But you know, I didn't play much, so I got a chance to sit and really watch and, and really learn. And um, at the time, you know, I wanted to play, but now looking back on it, twenty years later, it was really impactful for me to learn how to play college basketball. And we played Hampton Sydney in the Salem Civic Center in the championship game of the ODAC tournament. They were number one in the country. They were undefeated, uh, and we won we won the game. We went out and and we beat them. And I'll you know I'll never forget all the fans and the cheers and some of which I can't can't repeat here on the on the podcast um that was that was really a cool moment our alumni were excited everybody in town was excited we knew we were going to the ncaa tournament you know as a freshman you probably take a little bit of it for for granted but that that was certainly an experience i'll never forget yeah that's a great story so um what are some of the trends you know you've been involved in capital projects and planning and organization you know previous institutions and certainly i know you guys are looking at things at carthage but what are some of the trends or issues affecting the built environment that you think are influencing what you do? You know, whether it's pre-COVID, post-COVID, COVID influenced, what are some of the things you're aware of when you're managing your facilities? Yeah, so the, the number one thing is we're always trying to build a facility with an eye towards the future, right? One of the things, if we get a facility built, it's very hard to go back and add more space. Um, <laughs> 
So, you know, it, it, it cards that I'm fortunate. I walked into a great situation. Um, you know, we, we have, we're blessed with great facilities. Um, we have indoor, outdoor, um, my, my window, I'm actually standing, as we talk now, I'm staring out onto the turf field and, and into our football stadium. And I get a great view every day. I walk out one side, I see that I walk out the other side, I get to see Lake Michigan. Great, great, uh, great views. But, um, you know, we always try to try to look at with an eye to the future and, and, you know, you can't predict the future, but are you going to add other sports? You know, what, what size rosters are we anticipating? I, I think one of the biggest things that's, that's, that's overlooked that, that I see now is, is kids are looking for a locker room space. They're looking for an authentic space. They're looking for a personalized space. And, um, you really got to take that into consideration when you're launching into a to a to a project because you can't you can't really expand and, and build things in into bigger spaces. Um, one of the other things I've learned is you can never have enough storage, uh, so you know, you're always trying to stuck tuck things into corners and and do some other things. And you know, typically storage is the first thing that that people cut out of a project when they look at, at doing a baseline budget. But uh, storage is storage is important to keep your facility neat and, and, um, and clean. And you know, one of the other things I'm, 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 I'm seeing from my end, you know, as, as you know, climate change and some other things, and I don't know how much you guys are seeing this, but is, is lead certified and the, um, the, the environmental impacts of heating and cooling and some other things. And, and, you know, when we were going through the process at the center, one of the other things I learned is schools now are, are raising money for endowments for building operations. Um, you know, you build these big indoor field facilities, we build these indoor field houses, uh, we did build big new pools, you know, they're, they're expensive to, to operate. A lot of people don't see that. They think when we get the building built, it's going to be good, but they're, they're day over day, year over year operational costs. So, so schools have kind of, I thought that was a really creative approach of launching to uh, endowment to, to uh, sustain operations of the building. So that, yeah. that was new and cool that, that I've just recently seen in the last couple of years. You're right. That is definitely a trend we see that, yeah, you'll see, um, you know, oh, X million dollar donation to cover the project. And you and I know like a third of that at least, or sometimes half is towards endowment and operations. And then the other parts for bricks and sticks, as we, as we say in the industry. Yeah. So, but I've been really amazed too with, with uh, you guys as architects, what you can fit in certain spots, you know, how you angle things, how you take it, you, you're able to carve this out, you're able to do this. And it's, uh, it's always really been amazing to me how, you know, in, in Google Maps, you know, you, you look at the satellite view on Google Maps and you know, you draw lines and you're doing all these things as you go through the planning process. I mean, technology has really started to come in and, and in, even from a fundraising aspect, right? We, we, we get great ideas and we have these things, but you know, a lot of times I need, I need renderings to be able to show donors, Hey, if, if you invest in us and you invest in our student athletes, this is what it's going to look like. And even from the technology aspect component of being able to produce renderings, I mean, that's, that's yeah. been a game too in the fundraising world. How much I know you have to typically in your industry, you guys are involved in helping pitch donors, right. In support of the program, whether it's for building scholarships, whatever. Is that something you were always interested in or is that something that just kind of you came into as part of, you know, the profession? Yeah. You know, I, when I first started, I never was, um, but it's, it's really ironic how similar fundraising and recruiting are, you know, I go back to my recruiting days, right. You know, the first thing you try to do is you gotta, you have to identify or you have to evaluate, well, you know, in fundraising, that's, there's a lot of software packages and a lot of word of mouth. And so you, you, you kind of know who you're going to go after. So you identify those things. And then it's about building relationships. The same thing as recruiting, you're building relationships with the student athlete, you're building relationships with their family, people around them in fundraising. Really, you need to listen. I mean, I think that's the, that's the biggest thing I've learned in fundraising. I need to listen to the donor donor intent is, 
just you, you can't overestimate how important that is. So what is the donor interested in? What are they passionate about? What difference do they do they want to see? Um, do they want to see happen? And then, you know, it's just like recruiting. You put I've taken this a little bit more to my division one days when you can put a scholarship in front of them, but you put the scholarship and uh, fundraising. It's about when is the right time to make the ask and who's the right person to, to, to make the ask. So I was fortunate when I was the head coach at Eastern just kind of by happenstance everybody in division three has has a secondary duty or some people have three or four duties it just kind of depends on the position but um my secondary duty there was fundraising so i learned a lot really quickly about it it's just kind of one of those things that's evolved and i I think my number one job as an athletic director is to is to tell the story i got to tell a story of our department i got to tell the story of our our coaches our teams our student athletes and um with telling the story you have to be out there and you know nobody nobody ever has enough money um and nobody ever (laughs) resources and so uh, i try to let our coaches run their programs and i want to come from behind and and give them resources and you know as a coach what kept me up at night is if we didn't win or we lost or we did something that that didn't make any sense or i lost the recruit now what keeps me up today up at night as an athletic director mine after i worry about all the liability issues and we get through all the hr issues and all those things but is is knowing our coaches and student athletes have needs and i can't figure out a way to to provide for them so those are kind of the things that that keep me up and so they're they're very similar in the parallels so as you um, as you recruit coaches and fill out you know leadership staff, is it a similar approach as it is with student athletes, or is it a different approach when you're trying to recruit somebody to come to Carthage or when you're at Center or Eastern wherever you're previously? It, it, it is similar, you know. Obviously, um, for coaches, I mean, it, to me, the most important attribute, no matter the sport, is character. What, what is your character, and and what are, what are the actions you take? You know, it's easy to say a lot of things, but what are you really going to do when you're when no one's watching and, you, and your back's against the wall? So we really try to identify high character individuals first. Um, you know, obviously from from a coach, and we did this a little bit as a player too, but I think this is this is more important for for trying to recruit coaches or where have you been? What have your experiences been? Who have you been able to learn from? Um, you know, because I, I think that's invaluable in our business and in our profession, and you know. You're going to stumble upon rough times. You're going to be faced with difficult decisions. Uh, things are going to happen. Who, who can you pick up the phone and call? Who's going to help you through those things? Do you, do you have a support network? Do you have a group of people you can you can talk to? And then for me, it's it, whoever we hire has got to be student athlete centered, and they, and they got to put the student athletes first. It's about it's about the student athletes. I, I tell our coaches all the time. You know, we're going to be here. We have careers, we have professions, but our student athletes only get four years. And we have to make this the most memorable, special four years of uh, of their experience. And and so that's one of the one of the theories I, I subscribe to every day. Um, and then obviously, those who can who can win games and and who can recruit, who can who can drive the need. All those things are important too. But but characters of the of the utmost importance. Good. Enduring impact is another one of our topics. So you've alluded to some folks who've impacted you and influenced you, but what have you personally learned um, in your career that could help other organizations or individuals have an impact? What's your, what's your guru advice to others? A young pup coming into the industry, you know, you're at, you're teaching some seminar at Carthage in your sports, you know, management class. What's some of the advice you give folks, whether it's sports or not, you know, even if it's a, a dumb architect on the phone or, you know, a, a business person, you know, what's the advice? No, I, it, this is going to sound silly, but I actually liken back to what my high school basketball coach told me. So uh, Kevin Harris was, was my high school basketball coach. Um, and he's actually one of the reasons I end up at Roanoke. He, he played basketball at Roanoke. And so that's kind of how the thing worked out. But I graduated from Roanoke and was going to Marshall to take the, take the role in, in facilities and operations. And, um, 
he, he took me out. He, he used to always joke with me about how much food I would eat. But so he took me out as a graduation present from college. We went to, I believe it was Texas Roadhouse, and they had a challenge there. If you could eat a 32-ounce steak, you got the steak for free, and you got a T-shirt and all that. So uh, Coach Harris was a big year, too. And so he thought, he's like, let's do it. Let's do the challenge. And so I think I still have the T-shirt somewhere. So we did we did the challenge. I felt terrible for three days, but we did the challenge. And, um, and so we were talking kind of about what's next and, and what does the future hold. And, and, and I'll never forget sitting in that booth. You know, the best advice anybody's ever given me going into a new role as, as a young person was um, keep your eyes open, keep your ears open, and keep your mouth shut. Um, and, and there's a lot of truth to that, right? And, you know, I coming into a new role, you may think you know everything or you may think you know this, but really you learn so much by watching and listening. And that was always something I, I subscribed to and, and, and really just being willing to do any task. That was one of the other things he told me. You know, he said, you know, I know I'm a high school coach, but I know enough about college athletics. And if you're going to make it in college athletics, you really got to be willing to to do any task that's kind of presented. And part of why I, I, I joke about painting fields and, and using a pressure washer on the stadium, but um, you know, it, it really grounded me early. And so sometimes I'm not afraid here to be able to go out and get my hands dirty and, and do some different things and, um, and and be involved and just and just try to get involved in different tasks. I think as, as a leader, as a director of the department, I really need to understand the roles and the jobs that everyone's doing. Obviously, I can't be an athletic trainer and, and tape ankles, even though I had my ankles taped so many times when I was playing, I probably could, but, um, but really try to try to connect with people on a level and and um, even even new taking this role, I mean, um, I, I've really kind of really been really quick to listen and, and slow to act because I, I need to learn and I need to understand and I need to know why this works this way or why that works that way and really connect with people and, and get to be pe- people on a personal level. Hmm. Don't need a 32 ounce steak. You're not going to feel good for a couple of days. <laughs> Meat. Yeah, the meat sweats, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you remember all those, all those days. <laughs> yes. So, um, who is the greatest basketball coach to ever grace the court? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. I'm gonna think about that one for a g- Give me give me three, because right there's always generational or eras. Who are the top three basketball coaches that you would look to as is inspiration to you when you were coach and now you're an AD? Yeah, gosh, that's a that's that's a great question. You know, one of the things I try to do is read read a lot of coaching books. Um, you know, growing up and everybody would write great books. I was never alive to see him coach. By the time I started paying attention to what was going on in in, in athletics and college basketball, he he had obviously since retired. But um, if you look back at what he'd said and all the books he's written and all the sayings, I mean, you, you got to put John Wooden in one of the one of the top yeah. three. It's just based on pure success alone and, and then obviously all the all the anecdotal um pieces that come with that um gosh you, you got me going I'm, I'm gonna have to think here it's all right i mean based on success and the way he was able to manage personalities um and um you know again i'm a, I'm a product of growing up in the 90s when I'm, I'm aware and knowing what to do so i i do harken back to the bulls i mean i think phil jackson's probably got to be in that conversation too oh yeah oh yeah um, six titles with the bulls and then what he was able to do with shaq and kobe and the fact that he can just make people get along, you know, and he coached Dennis, you know, I don't know if you saw <laughs> the last dance documentary, but some oh. of the angst that Dennis Robin pulled, right. And yeah, people could say this and that, but I think one of the greatest things about Phil Jackson was he was able to connect with people on a personal level and he let people be individuals. And, you know, some of coaching is trying not to control, control what you can control, but don't try to control everything. And um, I, I think he, he certainly did that. I, and I well. saw that, you know, I'm like you, I was a, I grew up, my, my dad was a Boston guy. So I grew up in the eighties. I'm a little older than you, but Celtics. And then the bulls came on the scene and, and, uh, I didn't, you know, you knew they were amazing. Right. And you, and everybody rooted for the bulls cause they were, I didn't realize until I saw that documentary 
just how um how he did that right like i you know, i knew they're all strong personalities you just didn't realize how crazy it all was and how he i think it's a great lesson in leadership for anybody to watch that documentary like how he like you say how he got rodman in on that whole unbelievable i mean it, you know, it, it, part of that was i guess hit the middle of the pandemic and there weren't other live sports on to watch but you know that was the first time in a long time i was like all right sunday at nine you know sunday at nine o'clock we'll put the kids in bed so i can make sure i'm here and be able to watch this and turn it on and um yeah it's just it was like i said gr- growing up in that time frame in, in that era it was uh it was special um i guess i, I guess you need one more from me don't you uh um, you have a couple more you, you don't want to narrow it down but I mean, you know, if if you look back over the over the lifespan of of wins, and and I'm trying to think of a smaller college coach because I, I think there's some small college coaches who have been really really successful, and for whatever reason have not wanted to be in the limelight, or or not wanted to to see some other things. You know, what, one of the names that stands out to me, and it's it's not so much because he's had great success and won a ton of national titles, but it's because he's been successful at every stop he's ever been at, and and I think one of the unique things about him is he was never an assistant coach. So he started right out of college, and, and I'm talking about John Beeline, who's the head coach of West Virginia and Michigan, and um, had a short stint in the NBA. But you know, he he started it at the community college level, and then he went to Division three, and then he went to Division two, and then he was in Division one, and, and worked his way up the ladder. And to be able to win all those different places and all those different situations, and and, and you know, I got it. I got an opportunity when I was a graduate assistant at Marshall. We played West Virginia every year, and he was a West Virginia at the time. And then this is when they made their run, and they were in the lead eight one year, and then the next year they were really, really good. We would always play them in Charleston at the end of January, about this time of year, because the legislative session would come back in, and the, the governor of West Virginia would walk in, and he had a sport coat that they sewed together, and half would be green for oh, Marshall. Yeah, yeah. Blue for West Virginia, and it was a big deal in town. And, right there and in the Civic Arena, right? Right downtown, Charleston? Yeah. My my second year at Marshall, we beat them, so they were really good, and they played the one three one zone, and we made we made a uh, thirteen field goals in the second half, and all thirteen of them were three pointers. And Ronnie Don, who was from Newport, Kentucky, right across the river from uh, from Cincinnati, was just on fire that night. We just ran him along the baseline. He got to the corner and just rose up and stuck it. We won the game. And one of the things that stuck with me about John Beeline was after the game, he wasn't mad, he wasn't bitter, he was just very congratulatory to to our kids and, and the effort they gave. This was a guy who had a top ten program and. Um, just, just humble and, and down to earth. And, and, you know, there's a lot of great coaches, a lot of guys who have been successful. So to just be able to pick three and, um, mm-hmm. it is, is, is really hard. But that's, that's one of the names that stuck out to me, just just because the humility and the fact that he's been able to have success everywhere he's ever been it's, it says a lot of different situations and a lot of different styles and a lot of different parts of the country. Yeah, absolutely. So you were at two Division One programs, right? You were at a UMBC, kind of a city university, right? Who makes a run? They get in the tournament every once in a while. I know that, right? Right. You're at we, Marshall, which is a unique culture. Yeah, and then I spent a year at Radford, which was uh, oh, yeah. um, you know, in a in a little bit more of a rural area, so it was it yeah. was interesting. What um, given that you know, and I know some you know, we're not too far from the thundering herd here. There's occasional you see an M on a flag in someone's house from time to time. And I've always been amazed. What's so special about Marshall and their kind of their community? Yeah, I, I think it's that. I think it's 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 the the town, the city of of Huntington, and how people band together. You know, <clears throat> one of the things that really struck me, and again, I was I was twenty two year old, fresh out of college, um, coming in, and and I knew about the plane crash, but I didn't really know about the plane crash. I think it was 1970, 72, 73, something like that, seventy one. Um, you know, forgive me for not always remembering the year, but um, and walk in every restaurant in town you walk in every bar you talk to people who are alive and just the the, the 
as devastating as that was, the uniting effect that had on the on the folks in town, and and everyone in town is a Marshall supporter. Everyone supports supports the the teams. Everyone supports the student athletes. Um, everyone gets behind the the program, um, and, and that that they reach out. And they're really kind to to the players when they see them in town, and that was kind of the yeah. thing that I there. It was just just the community behind the behind the teams. Yeah, you know, I my wife's from Evansville, you know, who went through a similar tragedy, and um, and her, I believe, her father was supposed to be on the flight, but it was not on it because he was a high school coach, and wow, um, and um, you know, and understanding, you know, been around that family twenty five some years. It's similar to Huntington; it's a city that everybody gets behind the aces. You know, there Huntington is certainly more football oriented, but it, I think, people don't realize how much that impacted that community. You know, I have a, a former minister of mine as a diehard Marshall guy, you know, to, it, it's like part of their soul, especially for folks who are alive. Right. It's just a, it's a yeah. reverence. When they, when they, um, uh, start the fountain every year and they have the ceremony, I mean, it, you know, it's, you, you can certainly feel it, you know, and like I said, being, being new in town and being there, but you know, the more you talk to people, the more you learn about it. I, I'm, I'm going to say, you know, some of the scariest landings I've ever had in my life is when we flew back into Huntington, we're landing in the airport. Just, um, it is on top of a mountain and, you know, they've gotten obviously more, more um, specific about how they land now with the flight instruments, but you know, you could, you, we would doze off and you'd be asleep and you wake up and they take the big swooping turn around Ashland and the oil refineries there and they yeah. come down and you just, you know, it, it was always in the back of your mind a little bit. Cause you just kind of hover. It's really weird. You just kind of hover and then boom, all of a sudden you just come straight down. So, yeah. um, but, but yeah, I mean, just, just, uh, there's still great people in Huntington, still people I talk to to this day and I haven't lived there and you know, it's, it's, it's been 15 years since I lived there, but uh, they get behind it, support the herd and they're, they're diehard herd fans. And when football's rolling there, the town's rolling, when football's struggling, the, the town's struggling. So it was really, really interesting to, to see that. Well, any, uh, I appreciate all your time, Nate, you've taken some valuable time um, away from your tundra, <laughs> your frozen tundra on the lake shore. Um, any other last words of wisdom or insights or thoughts on, what you do in college athletics and life in general. Yeah. You know, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm just lucky, you know, get from Rapid Virginia who gets to work in sports for a living and work in college athletics. And, um, you know, I, I realize how, how fortunate I am. And then I see it now, like I said, I, I have an eight year old and a four year old. My eight year old is, is hugely, uh, impacted by sports, hugely impacted by our student athletes and just loves to be around and loves to give high fives. And, um, our women's basketball coach yesterday had an old whiteboard. And so my year old's gotten into drawing up plays now. So he sent the whiteboard around with me. And so my, my year old woke up this morning, and had a dry erase marker at the, at the breakfast table and he was drawing up plays and, um, I'm I'm just fortunate that that I get to experience that, but that my my wife and my my kids get to experience it too, and and it's really kind of a a family first uh, attitude for us. And um, yeah, just uh, you, you never know where life's going to take you. You never know where you're going to end up. The other thing about college athletics is you can't be afraid to move to new places and move to new towns. And you know, um, we met a lot of really cool and really neat people along the way, and lived in a, a lot of places I never thought I'd live. Who who thought I'd live in Kenosha, Wisconsin? And uh, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's been really neat. People here have really embraced this and, and we're fortunate to be able to do what I do. And at the end of the day, it's all about our student athletes and being able to get back and make it and make an impact in their lives. Awesome. Well, that's a great way to lead us out. So you take care up there and uh, good luck with your mascot selection finalization and um, getting ramped back up. I know all you guys are excited about having some seasons this spring, aren't you? 
Yeah, you know, and and for me, it's our student athletes, right? And just like I said, just to be able to see the look on and enjoy on 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 their face and and watching them compete, and um, you know, hopefully we're going to win more than we lose, but but just having the opportunity to to watch them do what they love is uh, is certainly impactful and meaningful to me. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. Building Ideas is presented by MSA Design. To learn more about MSA Design, visit us on the web at www.msaarch.com.